you know, China had a few, you know, ICBMs in silos, you know, but very, very few of them, like on the order of, you know, like 10, 20, something like that. Um, then suddenly, you know, folks found three separate silo fields, um, each of which having approximately 120 uh, silos within them that have been under construction for the past couple of years, and they're being um, built very, very quickly. Previous statements that China has said about its its nuclear weapons, where before, you know, it said we only need a few hundred, um, but now just sort of based on what we're looking at, it's it is possible that they could grow um, to somewhere near a thousand. Um, you know, by perhaps by the end of the decade is what the the U.S. Pentagon says. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Bretton Goods podcast. I'm speaking to Matt Carda, who works at the Federation of American Scientists. He writes about nuclear weapons. Um, hi, Matt. N- nice to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So um, to our listeners who don't know about you and your work, what do you do and why is it important? Yeah, so um, so I work for the uh, Nuclear Information Project at the Federation of American Scientists, and this is an organization that um, was started really kind of at the dawn of the the nuclear age um, by a group of atomic researchers. Right? They they created the first atomic weapons, and kind of realizing you know subsequently that um, you know science could be used to harm folks, they kind of set up this organization to promote the peaceful uses of science, um, to, to think about how science and technology can benefit humanity rather than harm harm folks. Um, and so FAS today works on a whole range of science and technology issues, but um, my project in particular, we, we work on um, tracking global nuclear arsenals uh, across the world. Um, we look at how these trends are changing over time and uh, kind of our, our big mandate is to um, promote nuclear transparency and to inject factual information into the public debate about nuclear weapons. So, you know, we we use open sources to do all those things, right? We use commercial satellite imagery, we use, you know, budget documents, official and unofficial statements, you know, local news, social media, all sorts of things to um, get information about nuclear weapons. And then uh, we try and make the best unclassified estimates um, to to the best that we can um, about how many nuclear weapons each country has and how those arsenals are changing. So there are a few organizations that do kind of this this sort of work, um, but sort of the the chances are that if, you know, if you see a number out there that says, you know, this country is estimated to have this many nuclear weapons, um, there's a strong chance that that number comes from us, um, which is which is really interesting and it's a lot of fun. Um, so uh, that's that's kind of the crux of our work. And um, we've had a you know a sustained increase in interest in nuclear weapons and nuclear weapon policy because of recent events. But if we take a broader picture view, you know, since 1945, how have the number and the uh, the quality, the qualitative aspects of nuclear weapons changed since then? Have they gone up, down, become more lethal, less lethal? What does that look like? Yeah, it's a great question. So um, I guess if you look at kind of a, a chart of, you know, the total inventories of nuclear weapons since sort of the dawn of the nuclear age, you'll kind of see a um, this, this you know, kind of general increase, then quite a dramatic increase in the, the 50s and 60s. Then it really sort of peaks, um, you know, you get you get somewhere in the, the 70s, 80s, where you're talking about countries that have 
you know, tens of thousands of nuclear weapons. Since then, and since the end of the Cold War, that, that number has gone down quite a bit. Um, and I guess sort of what we're seeing today is that this kind of gradual disarmament that we've seen since the end of the Cold War um, has basically paused. And, and in many ways, it's actually starting to be reversed, which is um, quite disturbing. So sort of, you know, if you look at how the total number of nuclear weapons in the world is changing on a year to year basis, like, like nowadays, um, you'd probably come away from that thinking that the disarmament picture is actually not so bad because we're seeing that that number is like slowly declining every year. Like there's a few hundred warheads that kind of, you know, go down every year. But that is almost entirely because of the United States and Russia dismantling retired warheads that are no longer in their in their military stockpiles. That is basically where the good news ends from a disarmament picture. Um, and, you know, in reality, what we're seeing is that every single country, all nine countries that have nuclear weapons, they are in the midst of um, extensive and very expensive modernization campaigns to basically replace every single nuclear weapon and delivery system in their nuclear arsenals. And so what we're seeing is that those weapons um, in many cases are uh, being built to last for the next you know, 50, 60, 70, sometimes 80 years. Um, so these countries are, are very much committing to nuclear rearmament for you know, basically the, the rest of our lives. Um, and also I would say that you know, countries are, are very much actively engaging in, um, I would say, what is, you know, what, what folks would call uh, the 21st century arms race, right? Countries are, um, you know, really starting to uh, uh, see how other countries are building their forces and react to those things. And um, in many cases, you know, adopt kind of mirror imaging postures and saying like, oh, if this country is building this particular type of missile, then we need to be building those particular types of missiles, even if they don't necessarily have a place in their military doctrines. Um, so, you know, we're seeing quite a quite a um, series of disturbing trends, I would say. Right. And um, now I have a lot of people who believe that I I know a lot of people who believe that, for example, you know, countries should upgrade their nuclear postures because they don't trust their opponents to not do so. And you and you enter, as you correctly say, an arms race. But, you know, compared to the 60s where you had a more sustained public arms race, Nikita Khrushchev taking a shoe and banging it on the on the table of the UN saying we will bury you and he, he was obviously had talking about an economic context there but the you know, the the subtext of the nuclear arms race was definitely there it, I think the Kennedy election was fought um you know somewhat explicitly on the basis of the missile gap which turned out to be false right but um I don't really see such an example there today of there being you know a dangerous arms race because it seems as if we just you know just like all technology improves nuclear weapons technology is, is improving and that 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 might be good or bad but it doesn't seem as if there's an intentional effort to go above and beyond to um increase the uh quality and quantity of nuclear weapons am i wrong here what exactly am i missing so i guess there there are a few things that i would you know think about in that context um I would say one thing is that, you know, back during the Cold War, um, you know, I guess this was was mostly in kind of the, the latter half of the Cold War, but we were really seeing the United States and the Soviet Union um, both 
understand, I think, quite quite clearly within their own countries, the dangers of um, having, you know, of nuclear buildup without uh, pursuing arms control, um, which, you know, arms control, uh, meaning, you know, negotiations or risk reduction measures designed to, to keep nuclear arsenals in check. Um, and also both countries um, started to realize sort of in the latter half of the Cold War as well, how destabilizing um, promoting things like defensive measures could be, right? Right. Really widespread missile defenses that could potentially uh, negate, you know, your adversary's ability to conduct a retaliatory strike. And so during that time, you know, the U.S. and the Soviet Union, they both really started to engage in arms control, um, specifically with the goal of limiting, you know, kind of the, the big strategic arsenals, but also limiting each other's defensive capabilities, because they both realized, you know, the, the defensive capabilities, you know, drawn out to, you know, a potential future scenario in which they're extremely capable has the potential of really spurring on this arms race. Um, and so they, they created these agreements that, that kind of paused the arms race in many ways, um, you know, in the, in the latter half of the Cold War. Those agreements have basically now all gone away, right? So in, in 2002, the United States withdraws from the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty, which um, Russia has always considered to be kind of the, the cornerstone of strategic stability is, is kind of the phrasing that they use. And, you know, whether, whether folks, you know, agree or disagree with, with the United States' reasoning, um, what's clear is that we're seeing the ramifications of that right now, right? At the time when the U.S. withdrew, Russia and China, to an extent, both kind of said, you know, if you do this, you're not going to like what our arsenals are going to look like 15, 20 years from now, because if you start building a lot of missile defenses, it, it restarts that arms race in which we are going to be incentivized to kind of build new types of things like hypersonic glide vehicles and stuff to, to get around your missile defenses. And the US, I think, you know, at the time, had its own reasons for wanting to pull out of that treaty, and they did so. Um, and now we are really seeing what the ramifications are. We're seeing that Russia is starting to build these extremely strange types of missiles that are getting a lot of media attention. You're seeing these missiles come up on these maneuverable trajectories that are designed to uh, uh, potentially strike first in a conflict. We're seeing China is dramatically expanding its own nuclear arsenal. Um, and then we're seeing as a result, the United States look at what Russia and China is doing and say, oh my God, like they're building hypersonics, we need to be building hypersonics, right? So there, there is this kind of element of mirror imaging and, and seeking parity um, that all of these countries are sort of doing to each other. And, and I would say the cycle is, is likely to just keep continuing because um, as I mentioned earlier, that there's no more incentive um, for arms control anymore just due to the, the political situation. So it's it's incredibly difficult now for these countries to sit down at the table and, and really talk about their respective security concerns. Could you shed more light on the weird and strange missiles? I've only heard a little bit about that, but not so much in detail. Yeah, so I, I guess it was um, 20, 2018, in March 2018, um, President Putin gave this big presidential address and he he unveiled, um, you know, six new systems, five or six new systems um, that the, the, a lot of Western media has called, you know, quote unquote, exotic systems is kind of the, the phrasing that they've been using. And these systems, um, I guess, are exotic because they're, they're quite, you know, they're, they're quite interesting. They're quite different. Um, 
many of which are very different than than what you know we've typically seen in Russia's nuclear arsenal. Um, you know, one is a, a very large ICBM, um, which in itself is not is not particularly strange. But then the others are, you know, you have a hypersonic glide vehicle that's being deployed on an ICBM. Um, there is a nuclear powered uh, nuclear armed cruise missile um, that Russia has tested a few times, but um, I don't believe any of the tests have been successful at this point. But that's you know pretty a pretty strange missile. There's a reason why no other country has tried to. Has tried to seriously develop it before. It's um, it's it can be quite dangerous. Um, they also have uh, an underwater nuclear armed long range torpedo, uh, which is meant to you know in theory sort of meant to create like a radioactive tsunami sort of situation um, and to be unleashed as a you know a retaliatory weapon. Um, there's an air launched ballistic missile that that can reach hypersonic speeds and. Uh, and, a, and an interesting laser as well. Pause, so for, a second. Pause for a second. So an air launch ballistic missile means I have, a, I have a plane or something that's flying and I launch a ballistic missile from that and it, well, wow, that is definitely both fascinating in terms of the, in the physics and um, extremely scary <laughs> in terms of the impact on human lives. Oh yeah, it's uh, it's there aren't that many countries that deploy air launched ballistic missiles. Um, China, China is another. They've been they've been developing one too. Um, yeah, um, I f- I feel like as if um the the amount of attention we give to Chinese nuclear missiles is very very little compared to the impact it could have because we've seen you know incidents or small um incidents over Taiwan that 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 can grow into larger ones. We've seen. Um, Chinese and American economic relations deteriorate to, you know, a substantial amount under both Democratic and Republican administration. There's a bipartisan consensus that, um, you know, China is bad for the U.S. And regardless of the extent to which I agree or disagree with that, um, it seems as if this is not um, this has this this amount of focus has not jumped towards uh, how 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 many nuclear weapons the PRC has. Yeah, it's interesting. Like, you know, China has has always maintained quite quite a fascinating nuclear posture, right? Uh, you know, since you know, since, you know, times of times of Mao, you know, Cold War um era, you know, China has stated that they will pursue really the the I guess their their phrasing is sort of something along the lines of wanting to pursue sort of the the minimum number of nuclear weapons needed for their security. Um and so their interpretation of that has always been something along the lines of really just just a few hundred nuclear weapons because they've seen you know the United States and Russia spend you know billions and billions of dollars on making thousands of nuclear weapons um and you know in China that that was seen largely as as kind of a waste of money right in in many ways um and they said you know we can we can put our efforts towards other things and we only need you know a few hundred nuclear weapons for our security that has sort of changed recently, which is interesting. So, you know, last last year, um, in July 2021, um, you know, we were involved at, at FAS in helping break a, a, a kind of an international news story that China was building um, several different uh, missile silo fields um, in kind of the, the northern deserts in, in uh, Xinjiang. What is a and, missile silo field for listeners who don't know? Yeah, so... Um, you know, the, both the United States and Russia deploy these as well. They're basically just a just a really large, a large 
area of land um, in which you might have, you know, several hundred uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles um, basically just dug into the ground in, in a silo. Um, and then, you know, you're able to launch them very quickly at, at sort of a moment's notice. And so you might have a field that has like 300, 400 silos. Um, you know, in the United States, these are deployed in places like North Dakota, um, Wyoming, you know, Montana. Um, in Russia, some of them are uh, you know, kind of in the in the southern region or where there um, tend to be a lot of wildfires, which is interesting. And so the United States and Russia both have these. Um, last year, it was kind of publicly disclosed um, that China is beginning to build them as well, which is quite interesting because it's it's quite a dramatic departure, perhaps from its previous nuclear force posture in which, you know, China had a few, you know, ICBMs in silos, you know, but very, very few of them, like on the order of, you know, like 10, 20, something like that. Um, then suddenly, you know, folks found three separate silo fields, um, each of which having approximately 120 uh, silos within them that have been under construction for the past couple of years, and they're being um, built very, very quickly. And so, you know, we still don't really know, you know, whether those are going to be filled, um, if every single silo is going to be filled, um, what they're going to be filled with, whether it's going to be, you know, um, you know, nuclear weapons, uh, you know, conventional weapons, um, whether, you know, a missile can have multiple nuclear weapons, you know, inside of it. We, we, there's still a lot that we don't know. But what we do know is that this is a this is quite a dramatic shift from um sort of the previous statements that China has said about its its nuclear weapons, where before, you know, it said, we only need a few hundred. Um, but now just sort of based on what we're looking at, it's, it is possible that they could grow um, to somewhere near a thousand, um, you know, by perhaps by the end of the decade is what the, the US Pentagon says. But again, those are all based on a lot of assumptions that, that we still don't really have the answers to. And um, while this raises tensions in the U.S., I assume that this makes Indian nuclear policy people even even more tense because they're the ones right 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 next to them. They had a quite a disturbing incident last year where I think over forty Indian troops were killed in hand to hand clashes with Chinese troops. There has been again, um, I think in in twenty seventeen there was a standoff between in India and China at the Bhutanese Chinese border, and this is you know in many ways troubling for India because they are not only conventionally very much inferior to China, they're also qualitatively uh, inferior. How has, you know, what do you, how have uh, Indian nuclear, how has the Indian nuclear posture changed because of this? And and, and give us broadly the um, nuclear dynamics in South Asia, how did they change with India and Pakistan there? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And honestly, like that, that particular region is is the one that I think a lot of um, folks who who study nuclear weapons and and think about nuclear issues uh, are quite worried about, right? Because I think the the nuclear situation in um, you know in South Asia is just increasingly getting more and more unpredictable each year, right? Not only are you having you know this buildup in China, um, but you're also having you know similar buildup, but not you know not nearly to the same extent as China. But in both India and Pakistan, both countries are growing their nuclear arsenals. Um, but to me, what's particularly concerning is that both countries are increasingly uh, emphasizing um, very rapid readiness and launches of their nuclear systems at the outset of a crisis. So, for example, you know, in the Indian context, 
you know, India unveiled um, several new uh, nuclear delivery systems that are specifically designed to be launched from canisters. And what that allows you to do is that it allows you to pre-mate your nuclear warheads with the missiles instead of having to, you know, install them for several hours prior to a launch. And so what the, what this canisterization allows you to do is that just at the very outset of a crisis or potentially a miscalculation, a miscommunication, a false alarm, um, those weapons are designed to be launched very, very quickly. And, you know, kind of in a, in a similar vein, Pakistan has emphasized the development of tactical nuclear weapons um, that are specifically designed also to be used on the battlefield at the very outset of a crisis. And so what we're seeing from both countries um, is that really you have this emphasis on turning to nuclear weapons very, very quickly um, at the beginning of a conflict. And as you point out, you know, there have been a lot of skirmishes, you know, people have died in, in these, these incredibly worrying incidents between um, several nuclear armed powers. And then when you add into the situation um, that happened, you know, back in March of, of this year, where it seemed like there was an, an accidental launch uh, of a missile from India into Pakistan. And thankfully, nobody, nobody was injured. As far as we know, nobody was injured, you know, nothing, nobody got hurt. But you can really imagine a situation where um, with both countries kind of on this, you know, hair trigger alert, and their, their both postures are set to launch nuclear weapons very quickly in a crisis, you can imagine that during a time of higher tensions, you know, something like that really could have, um, you know, spiraled out of control very, very quickly. Yeah, and, and this is not without historical precedent. You know, I think in 1999, India and Pakistan were uh, were at the brink of tensions. In 2001, the Pakistani Pakistani terrorists attacked the Indian parliament, to which the Indian prime minister said, you know, we're going to, you're, 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 you're never going to hear the end of this. And, and they had a minor nuclear buildup there. And that was extremely concerning. And um, it's, what, and, if I understand this correctly, there's sort of a cascading, a, a cascading effect from the U.S. to Pakistan. Yeah, so you know the, uh, the 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 Americans give up the uh, the ballistic missile treaty in 2002. Russia and China get concerned. Russia builds up, and America builds up. China builds up, and so India looks at China and says, "Huh, we got to build up." And Pakistan looks at India and says, "We have to build up." Yep. I, is this is this the is this the the correct mental model I'm looking at? Yeah, very much like, you know, people think about this as, um, you know, you can, I guess, look at it as like almost a series of, I don't know if they're like Venn diagrams or lines or something like that. But but it's it's very much, you know, how you describe where during the Cold War, it was this very binary thing, right? It was United States building up and then the Soviet Union building up and they just are both constantly building each other, you know, elevating the threats from each other. And then so... Um, triggering their own nuclear buildups. Now you have this, this situation where you have this multipolar nuclear world, right? Where a buildup in one country can have several trickle down effects, you know, many countries down the line, um, which then in turn can cause buildups back in a, into a previous country. So for example, you know, a big buildup in China, um, and like, as you mentioned, um, can trigger a big buildup in India and, India in particular is in kind of a, a, a worrying place here because, um, you know, increasingly they are having to take into account both China's nuclear posture and Pakistan's nuclear posture as India developed its 
you know, its own nuclear forces and thinks about how to posture itself. The problem with that is because China and Pakistan are very different countries when it comes to their nuclear postures. And so it's really difficult. India is in quite a, quite a complex situation where you want to, I guess from their perspective, they want to build up to a situation to be able to deter both countries, but without one of those countries um, feeling like it, like India could launch, you know, a, a, what's called a, a splendid first strike or, or being able to basically wipe out, you know, all of Pakistan's nuclear forces at the outset of a conflict, right? And so it's 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 a really complicated situation because, you know, India perhaps wants to, to build up to, in order to deter China, but in doing so, Pakistan might say like, oh my God, we are getting completely outnumbered. You know, we are, um, our, our posture is very vulnerable and then Pakistan has to build up as well. So it's like, it's it's a really delicate balance that countries have to strike. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, it's quite worrying. It leads to a lot of these kind of follow on trickle down dynamics. The national security strategist, like you know, the guy who who likes to look at maps and say war could go this way, has the this has this concern which says that you know um all this is very fun and good, but uh, on a practical level, how should policymakers ap- approach this? Like broadly, I you know I'm I'm Indian. I'm broadly in favor of 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 uh, India having some level of defense against Chinese and Pakistani weapons. I'm I'm broadly in favor of the uh free world. I I'm very much prefer it if the U.S. were to win a war against China. And I think many people share these values, but it seems as if there's a trade-off here between nuclear security and, um, you know, maintaining a level of, um, a, and, and maintaining a military advantage over people whom we don't want to win. Do you agree with that? And, and regardless of that, what is the optimal way to solve this problem? It seems like the most important problem in nuclear policy. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, right? I guess, like, I would say that, like, broadly speaking, I think, you know, everyone generally wants the same goal, right? Which is that you want to reduce the odds of a nuclear conflict taking place, right? And and I think this can be done when we, when we if we want to think about kind of tangible things that countries can do or individual actors can do, that can be done by addressing, you know, as a kind of several different buckets of factors that increase the broader risk levels. So I guess like you can sort of lump these into a few different categories, right? So one of them is countries can change their force structure. They can change their launch authority. They can change their doctrine and they can change how they interact with other countries. So we can talk about each of those really quickly. So changing force structure is, is sort of like what we, what we just spoke about, right? It's, it's about, changing the ways in which a country's nuclear arsenal is designed, right? So countries, in order to reduce the risk of nuclear war, but still maintain, you know, deterrence and, and meet their deterrence objectives, you know, they might be, they, they perhaps, um, it would be a good recommendation for countries to, you know, phase out these sort of destabilizing first strike weapons, or to perhaps reduce the risk of, um technological entanglement between weapon systems that make the jump to nuclear war much more likely, right? So for example, we spoke about how, um, you know, India and Pakistan are are kind of very much postured towards a, a you know, an, an initial use of nuclear weapons in a conflict. Um, 
there should be something that's done in order to reduce the emphasis of those particular weapons, because those weapons are the things that are driving uh, the the jump to nuclear war at the very outset of a conflict. So that's kind of, you know, thinking about the force structure. Then there's also, you know, launch authority, right? So it's, it's thinking about who is in the decision-making loop in the context of a nuclear crisis, right? So in the United States, like this is, you know, basically solely the president. They are the ones that are, um, you know, the only the only individual that's authorized uh, to issue a nuclear strike. In other countries, it's completely different, right? That's not always the case. And so, you know, this is this is really about thinking what is the most optimal way of um, having a safe nuclear launch authority, so that you have smart people in the loop who are able to react in a decisive way, but not one that um, you know accidentally drives your country into into a nuclear war. So that's that's kind of thing about launch authority. Yeah, yeah. Then you... I'm sorry to interrupt you there, but um, yeah, I remember okay. I remember reading a story where Nixon drunkenly ordered a nuclear attack on North Korea <laughs> while researching. I'm like, wow, you know, that's a we've seen presidents worse than than, than Nixon on the um context of emotional st- uh, stability. So it's uh, uh, not a not an implausible thing. <laughs> no, not at all, right? And like there are um, <laughs> I remember. It was, I forget who it was that that came up with this idea, but someone kind of had this hypothetical, um, you know, th- this interesting idea that that got published, you know, a few a few decades ago. The idea being that, you know, in the United States at least, um, in order for the president to be able to launch a nuclear strike, then the nuclear codes should be put into a vial and implanted next to the the heart of like their aid or something like that, and. The president um, basically should have to like murder their their presidential aide and wow. like dig out oh. the codes <laughs> in order to launch the nuclear strike because they should have to you know like feel you know what it's really like to murder someone before they go about you know murdering hundreds of thousands of people. It's like a very hypothetical, but it's, yeah, it's kind of you know it's just in kind of an interesting thought exercise. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's sort of like the I guess the launch authority bit, and and there are a lot of different countries that think about this in a lot of different ways, right? And, and some countries, you know, have multiple individuals that are part of the decision-making process. Some countries just have one. Um, some countries involve the military, some don't, right? So that there, there really is kind of like a, a diverse set of options here. Um, but I think more thinking needs to be done a little bit about what is kind of the safest launch authority um, that a country can have. Yeah, I mean... So then. then Oh yeah, what's up? Yeah, no, I I think I could have an entire podcast, like a full hour, talking <laughs> about you know how do you design optimal nuclear launch authorities. It's such a fascinating subject to think about. It really is, and also then you run into some legal questions too, right? Because you know in the United States, um, Congress has the constitutional authority to declare war, right? Not not the United States, uh, not the president, rather. Sorry, um, and so you know if the president wants to launch a nuclear strike, you know, then does it, do you run into legal trouble with not consulting Congress first, but also, you know, as people know, like trying to consult Congress on anything takes a very long time and probably is not the most practical in the context of a nuclear strike. So like, you know, there's all these really, really fascinating questions that kind of go into, um, go into thinking about that. Um, And that, that sort of does play into a little bit this, this question about doctrine too, right? Because, you know, one other way that you can think about um, perhaps reducing nuclear risk is is about changing doctrine 
that formally limits the scenarios under which nuclear weapons would be used. So, for example, some folks in the United States have argued that the U.S. should adopt um, what's called a, a no first use posture, which could reduce the risk of nuclear use potentially because it would signal to other countries that the U.S. will not be the ones to launch nuclear weapons first in a crisis. Um, you know, then you do get into questions about, you know, whether or not that's that's a believable doctrine, right? That those are just words on paper, and so it sort of has to match your force structure. Um, you know, people have a lot of questions about um, Russia's doctrine, China's doctrine, whether or not the the words on the paper would kind of stand up in the context of a, an actual nuclear crisis. But um, that is that is one other way. And then the the last thing that I would mention too is you know, something else that's really important is, is about changing the ways in which nuclear armed countries interact with each other, right? You know, we can promote policies that, uh, that emphasize predictability, transparency, countries being able to talk to each other. That can be done through things like, you know, formal arms control agreements, which limit the country's um, nuclear weapons, or it can be done through things like setting up hotlines, you know, um, sponsoring dialogues between nuclear armed states, um, you know, all, all sorts of things like that to think about, you know, what are these different countries' red lines and to make sure that countries aren't crossing them. So I guess those are kind of like the four real broad buckets of nuclear risk reduction um, that countries can think about and that individuals working on these policies can think about to, to make the world a little safer. Very briefly, what's your theory of change? Uh, well, I guess... <laughs> I guess sort of in a way promoting all all four of those things together like those four buckets that I mentioned I think actually actually really goes a long way into um making the world a safer place and and reducing the risk of nuclear weapons the way that you know my organization and and the way that our project thinks about this is that none of those buckets of work are possible unless you have a good sense of what these countries' nuclear arsenals actually look like, right? Because countries are very hesitant to talk about their nuclear arsenals, and they rarely give any information about how many nuclear weapons they have, what their status is, how they're deployed, where they're deployed, you know, on, on which launch platforms, you know, things like that. Um, the problem with that is that um, because countries don't talk about their, their nuclear weapons in a public forum, it makes it really, really difficult for um, experts, you know, academics, diplomats, the public, the media, to be able to uh, contribute to those conversations about nuclear weapons, right? The, these, all these things are only really going to change if um, you have smart people, you know, injecting their proposals um, into the government process. If you have a public that is engaged and, and cares about these issues, if you have a media that can hold the government to account. Um, and if you have diplomats that can talk to each other. And what, what we've seen is that um, because, for example, like China isn't going to you know, publicly say, this is how many nuclear weapons we have, um, they will cite uh, our numbers, right? They will say like, oh, this, you know, the Federation of American Scientists says we have this many nuclear weapons. And they say that the United States has this many nuclear weapons. And then they kind of give sort of a, a policy prescription from there. So what we think is, is kind of the role that we play and where we think is really important is to be able to provide this kind of common language to everyone, right? Whether it's 
countries who want to discuss arms control with each other, whether it's the media, whether it's the public, academics who want to propose arms control agreements. And we hope that by sort of performing this watchdog role and convincing countries to be a little more transparent, that that will sort of um, move the ball forward and, and trickle upwards so that you know all of these countries are able to engage a little bit better and that um, the world can get a little bit safer. Yeah, no, I think the work you do regarding information transparency is super valuable. So um, th like, thank you for that, like generally on behalf of all the people who need it. So um, yeah, that was, it was really great talking to you. At some point in time, when I have more time, I want to do a podcast on this on, in more detail, especially because I think, you know, we, we, we've only touched the, uh, the basic aspects of this. There's, there's, there's so much stuff here. How do you know if you, if what do you believe is true? How do you think about nuclear command authority? In fact, I, I don't think India's nuclear command authority is transparent they, you know, I have like so many questions about that it's it's um very fun but in general thank you for coming on this podcast and doing the work you you do um i think public acknowledgement should be like more so uh you know <laughs> generally thank you thank you so much i really appreciate it. and uh and i'd love to come back anytime and, and chat more about this because it's it's so interesting and uh, i think you're right we could talk for hours so <laughs> thank you oh it